Hello, this is Gardening with Camilla. Today is a special programme because I'd like to welcome into the studio a friend and colleague from Radio 1 RPH, Rod Taylor. Rod has just written and published a book, Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet, and I'd like to introduce him and he'll tell you a bit about himself. Thank you, Rod. Hello, Camilla. It's wonderful to be with you and talking about gardening and about the book. So my own background is uh, is quite complicated. I used to be an IT person, and I still am. And then towards the end of 2016, I was thinking I'm deeply, deeply concerned about the environment. And what can I do about it? Well, in parallel with my IT career, I was doing media. So I write for the Canberra Times and related newspapers, magazines, and broadcast uh, on other stations apart from one RPH and so I wrote this book and I wanted to learn about what Australians are doing, special people are doing about the environment. How can we, each of us, be active in some way and the stories are really character studies uh, about these people who I would say are champions of the environment. Thank you and as gardeners, we have our own little patch of the environment. What sort of things can we do to care for that? Well, the gardening is a, such a wonderful thing. We love a garden because, Camilla, here we are doing the gardening program and the future of, the, of food production and the land and our connection to it is really, really critical. So... You go to the supermarket, right, and you look at the vegetable shelves and you go, there's rows and rows of stuff and it's wrapped in plastic, which drives me nuts. <laughs> and I can see you're nodding, Camilla. <laughs> but we've lost this connection with the land. I think that's very important. And quite apart from uh, anything else, growing your own food is very satisfying to see things develop and grow. And it's real somehow. It's not wrapped in plastic. You've had it. And also it's very important, I feel, and a lot of the garden writers whose work I read are always going on about being organic, not using artificial fertilisers and chemicals. The vegetables can manage perfectly well without them. <laughs> Your views on that? Yes, oh, definitely. Well, when you, when you grow something yourself, or when you make something yourself, how often do we make things ourselves now? Like even a prepared meal so it's, it's pre-processed or you might buy well here's in front of me is a little uh, reader that we put our newspapers on as we're doing our live readings or whatever and somebody has made that somebody from the station has made that and it feels like it's personal I, it, I've got a connection I feel like I and it are related in some way so Gardening brings us close to that sort of thing. And those tomatoes, I can remember Grandad growing ox heart tomatoes. And I can see, yes, the look on your face, you have fond thoughts about ox heart tomatoes. And he had this wonderful garden in Monica, in Griffith House, built just after World War II. And he served up this tomato, and it was such a rich luscious experience you know the scene in Ratatouille yes where, where the nasty critic guy and he has the uh, the meal what's the meal that he that the rat serves him I can't remember 
and he has all these flashback memories and, and he can see his childhood. And it is, it's all the memory and the colour and the flavour. There's, there's no doubt about it. Homegrown tomatoes particularly, the smell of them, the flavour of them, the colour. I mean, there's a whole tactile enjoyment experience there. And I think it's very important that we, we look after our soil properly. I mean, there was a gardener in Edinburgh where I come from who used to broadcast and say, the odyssey lies in the soil. Well, how true... The soil, the earth, it's there. We don't need to spoil it, but we do need to look after it. Yes. What are some of the ways we can look after our, our oil? And our yes, soil and, and our former Governor-General, Michael Jeffrey, was an advocate for caring for soils. Soil, that stuff also known as dirt, right? And it's a nuisance. It gets on the floor and so on. And we have a really kind of a weird relationship to soil. We, But... It, its central role in feeding us is, well... Absolutely vital. It's and vital. I feel this too, that it's so important. And if you can manage to work yourself and work it with natural products, our vegetable waste, making compost, restoring the goodness, the microbes in the soil, letting them get to work encouraging worms, having a worm farm. A lot of the garden writers are going on about this. And if you look after your soil, things will grow. It's, it's wonderful. We tend to think of soil as being this just stuff, right? It just sits underneath the grass. But it's a living thing. Mm. It's an environment. It's an ecology in its own right. And I'm currently working with other people to uh, present a major conference on uh, sustainable agriculture mm-hmm. and from like one of the speakers is uh, an advocate for dung beetles mm-hmm. so of course we've introduced cattle and sheep and, and they get big cow pats and so they drop the cow pats and all that nutrient gets bound up and in this dry Australian sun the thing forms this hard cake and the dung beetles go wow look at that meal and they go you beauty and they, they dig it up and they dig it into the soil and one of the people in the conference as well I, I was watching a video produced by a friend of mine and he's up on the Alps of uh, in the uh, Kosciuszko region right up very near the peak there and he said this land was grazed uh, was it 50 years ago or something and he, and he pointed to this thing on the ground and he said that's a cow pad and it's still there after all those years all those nutrients and everything all st- stuck locked up and then he pointed to the soil and it has really really sadly degraded even though it's been free of uh, uh, grazing for that time Yes, the natural products have not been used I'm also, um, and I'm sure you are too very concerned about water It's hard to think of after a wet summer but we know what the drought's like and people waste water Yes, wastewater. And also, this is one of the key themes in the book. So, Shoanne Lovett is a water river restoration person. And I met Shoanne and we went out to a field day and they showed us this paddock, right? So, you know, the soldier settler program post-war and they, they paid a bounty for people to remove trees. And it, it shredded the cover off the land, and the water just run across, accelerates, and it, it, stri- it stripped the soil away. 
And another person in the book is Margie Fitzpatrick, and she has a sheep farm north of uh, Lake George. And she told me how working with Shawan and the team, they're, they're just slowing the water down. So they put obstacles in the water, slow it down and mess it up is the the Yes, the and catch, people have been building growing. swales and all sorts of things That's to right. conserve what water they have. And I, and I want to contrast one of that with, with one of my personal <laughs> person you'll have to you'll have to stop me in a moment but the concrete spoon drains around our city okay water is a problem to be solved water has to be taken away it's about efficiency and speed but if you walk around one of those spoon drains it's it's a sad and depleted yes. place Yes, and in your garden, the same thing, you know, if we think about how water flows, I don't claim expertise in this, but maybe you know more, uh, Camilla, but the way you manage water on your own property. Uh, well, I think it's very important. I think it's absolutely vital. I see people near me watering every night because that's what they do in their evenings after their evening meal. No. And they know this from various garden writers who are always going on about this. Plants need watering once a week, a good soaking, and that's in summer. Leave the plants alone. They're perfectly capable of surviving. You can often tell if they do need, and they stick your finger in the soil if you're not sure. And the same goes for pot gardening. You don't just water for the sake of it. And the other thing is the sort of plants that people use. Yes, it's lovely to have exotic plants, but what's wrong with what's growing naturally? I'm not meaning weeds. I'm meaning plants that are suited to our particular climate, our particular soil, our particular environment. Well, one thing we might talk about, Camilla, is weeds as well. Yes. So another person in the book uh, is Charlie Prell. Now, he's a fifth-generation sheep farmer out near Crookwell, and he's been an advocate for wind farms and renewable energy and showing how farmers can uh, earn a regular income because Australia's climate is... It's so variable, it's, and it's erratic, and it's getting worse with climate change, and it's really pushing the boundaries. And the connection to food is, is, is critical. So if our farmers can't produce food, then we're, we're in real trouble. So I was out at Charlie's place not long ago, and he pointed to a scotch thistle. And he said, somebody has sprayed that. One of the workers sprayed that. And he said, and you look at the ground around it, there's this little dead patch. And he said, now we're committed to using the herbicide on that because you've got a dead patch. And, of course, what's going to pop up first in that patch? Another weed. So regenerative agriculture, so-called, and I think there must be a parallel in your own home garden, is you wind back those things so much. And there are ways of treating weeds. And, and Camilla, well, you, you have... there's nothing wrong with hand weeding, and it's very good for your health, and it's very <laughs> satisfying. A weeded bed stays weeded. You cook a meal, it's gone in a few minutes. But with regard to weeds, a lot of um, our writers have advocated putting weeds in a bucket and covering it with water and let them sort of moulder away, and after a while you can drain off the water and you've got the nutrition without the seeds. So you've got the goodness that can come from the green, from the weeds, without necessarily the seeds. You may get the odd seed. But there's nothing desperately wrong with a few weeds. They upset the gardener. They don't upset 
the garden necessarily, unless there's too many and they smother plants. Well, I, I think you touch on something there, Camilla, and that is the sense of control, and it, it applies mm. to the water story as well. So, uh, and Shuan told me this story that there was a sugarcane farmer who was held up as being a great icon of, of land care, of, of looking up, and he was great, and his heart was in the right place and everything. And he showed her the riparian zone along the river, and he had beautifully mown the grass. It's just lovely. And Shuan was thinking, oh, well... But she was very subtle the way she went about it, and I tell that story in the book. And uh, you just let it go a bit wild, let it, and, and it catches the sediment. It slows the water down. And it's also healthy to have... Uh, all right, nobody much likes cooch grass, really, but there's, you don't have to have a beautifully mown lawn. And when you do cut the grass, use that to make compost. Use it as mulch. It's like the leaves from the trees. Oh, they're a nuisance. We've got to burn them. No, you don't have to burn them. Store them and let them rot. Use it as leaf mould. Use it for your plants. Well, nature is a great cycle and a great recycler. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. So you pull the weeds out, it becomes uh, nutrients for other things. Uh, the birds come in, the worms and the beetles, the slater bugs. I can remember tuning into a gardening program on, a, on the ABC one day and a listener called in and said, what can I do about the slater bugs? And I was thinking, why, why do you have a thing about slater bugs? And someone else said, oh, there's moss growing in the grass. Oh, do you love moss? It's yes, moss is good. And so the, 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 the expert on air didn't bat an eyelid. He just said, oh, you use this insecticide or whatever control for slater bugs. This was before everybody came more consciously aware. And it's people like you, Rod, and your people in the book who are making us aware, who are educating us, that these things are useful and good. When you talk about moss, if you've got moss in your lawn, rake it up, use it to line a hanging basket. It's far better than a piece of carpet. <laughs> a moss looks beautiful. I love, I love moss. Yes, moss is lovely. It grows on the north side of trees. That's how you can always tell the north side. But, but it's, all, it's all around this theme of being in control. So the perfect garden has straight edges, no weeds, beautifully mown grass, Grass all short. <laughs> but it's pretty boring, really. It is pretty boring. Now, I, I'm just thinking about, we, ha we have a lot of waste, natural household waste. Now, packaging is a whole big deal. We can't do a great deal about packaging, really. But, I mean, there's nothing wrong with your food waste, and food waste can be composted as long as you compost, you know, the alternative, I'm always harping on about this, the green and the brown. You mix your compost, you have your layers of the wet organic waste and then your layers of shredded newspaper, whatever. Oh, you can, you can answer a question for me, Camilla, and yes. that is uh, we have a compost bin and we put all our vegetable waste in there. And I, I don't eat meat, but uh, my wife does a little bit. So if there's some chopped bones or a bit of uh, gristle or whatever, is that okay in a compost bin? It's not ideal. It's not ideal to have meat in. It depends very much. Um, if you have a worm farm, you could... Put the, the bones and the meat parts in there. Worms, you can't put citrus or onion in, though, but they can go in your compost. Now, I don't know that meat's a terribly good idea in compost. Quite apart from anything else, it could attract rodents, and rodents can attract... 
Oh, I think it can go anaerobic as well, so you're producing methane yes. and stuff like that. So. And the other thing people say, oh, compost dirty and smelly. I used to love it. Where we are now, we're not allowed to have a compost bin, alas, but I can bury my rubbish. Um, and I used to enjoy when I did the compost. I was filthy dirty, and I turned the wretched thing. It never smelled. It was crumbly. And I used to... I remember I've broadcast about this, and I would... Say, oh, you could almost eat the compost. You couldn't, of course. But it wasn't wet or claggy or smelly. It was beautiful soil. Mind you, the trouble I found with compost, I would put in mountains and mountains of stuff and get hardly anything out. <laughs> it took such a while. But um, I always meant to get one of the tumble composters. And, of course, the ideal thing is to have the space and have several compost bins on the go, that you've always got some preparing, some ready, and some new stuff. And it's very important. And I also feel quite strongly, I'm sure you do, that we should be attracting wildlife to our gardens. Well, that's the thing about a garden. So we, we had our garden. A guy came around and he's really expert in landscape design. And uh, we now have a beautiful garden. We said, And it's just a beautiful place to be you sit there the, the the fairy wrens come in the currawongs and we have a a white cedar in the front yard which is a very unusual tree because it's one of the few australian natives that are deciduous and this autumn we had a huge flock of cockatoos we had uh, the corellas come in we had a uh, king parrots rosellas and they just going nuts on pardon the pun on these berries it's just, wonderful. Uh, I mean, I used to, when I had um, apricot and peach trees in my last garden, I used to get so annoyed at the birds coming down and picking one peach and eating a little bit, then throwing the rest away. <laughs> but the stones went into the ground and we had beautiful peaches, um, and I could spare some. But to have the birds... I mean, I know the magpies are not singing to me as I hang out the laundry, but I feel as if they are. You know, it's lovely you're out there and the magpies are singing. We have a, a dead tree in the property next to us and I'm pretty certain they're going to knock it down. And I love that dead tree. The birds are posed in the branches against the bare sky and it just looks fabulous. And as I say, they sing to me. At least I feel as though they sing to me. Well, it's about this connection, connectedness, isn't it? And, and our, as we were saying earlier, our modern lifestyle is so insulated, it's so packaged, it's produced. And there's this kind of sense that if I didn't pay for it, it has no value. But nature provides this thing to us for free. And if we look after it, it will look after us. It's so important. It's like the slow food versus fast food bit. Slow food's much better. Slow food that you've watched grow yourself, you've prepared yourself. Yes, it takes time, but it's so much better for you than opening a plastic packet. Um, you know, we don't need to be so fast, and it's the same with gardening. It takes time to plant veggies. It takes time to weed. It takes time to look after them and thin them out and all the rest of it. But that's what time's for, isn't As it? Sniff, to smell the road if they smell, Absolutely. if they smell, can I bring us to a, a related theme, Camilla, mm -hmm. and that is about people. Yes. So we are facing a really, really serious situation at the moment. We are the last people alive now who have any hope of rescuing the future of humanity. Now we have wasted so much time, and we are on the verge of an environmental 
crisis which will affect us and, and all future generations. And if we had lost one of the great wars, we might be speaking a different language now or living in a different political environment. But somehow or other, we would have got through. But we will not survive an environmental crisis. And our economy will not survive a crisis like the one we are looking at right now. So in the book, I wanted to meet people who are facing up to this crisis and whether it's gardening, whether it's water, soil or renewable energy, I found people who really care and who are motivated and they have a sense of hope, not unrealistic hope, but this sense that each of us can be powerful in our own special way. And you, Camilla, here we are having a conversation about gardens and the environment, which is clearly something of great import to you and our listener uh, our people tuning in to us right now uh, each of us can make a difference even if it's only a small thing yes I think you're absolutely right the earth is really all we've got apart from our bodies we're ruining those as well and we've got to look after what we've got it is a beautiful world it's up to us to keep it that way and I think it's very important to keep the natural things going um, where I live we have someone who has beehives and he's encouraging us all to have bee stations in our garden and it's it's just a lid with some stones in so that they can and, and you put water in of course and then to encourage us to um, grow different plants bees apparently love blue plants well there's quite a lot of blue plants and blue is very nice in an australian garden it's a hot country blue's a cool color so it's very nice to have the bee stations. And then, of course, there's things like bird tables. Well, there you go. You're, you're describing a person who uh, I think it's a mix of personal values, things that I value, and the sense that I can do something about it. I have because I think the, the problems are of such a big scale that we tend to disconnect, and I understand that. And, in fact, I have to do it too because I, I personally feel depressed and daunted sometimes if, if I allow myself but if we have these, the values that these things matter and we have a sense that we can do something ourselves in whatever ways, large or small, then we're not powerless. We're not simply twigs being washed down the drain and helpless. And I think nature can help us do that. I mean, some people have bee hotels, which is like a, a sort of rack with different logs and different bits and pieces, twigs, stuff, so that the bees can have a sort of bee hotel. I'm not sure how successful otherwise. Other people, you, you, you may have a little pond where you can encounter the lizards, you can have the frogs, and to hear them at night is really pretty cool. It's good to encourage the microbes, I mentioned this before, and the bacteria in the soil, to have worms. Worm farms are very popular indeed, and you can use the worm juice as well as the worm excrement, get rid of a lot of waste that way. And, of course, that, again, is feeding the soil, and you've got the worms in the soil. They're doing your digging for you. They're doing your weeding for you. And the native wasps, the mud building yes. and the paper wasps, as long as they're not too close to the back, exactly. back door. 
And we got one of those little moth hotels. And a, oh, right, yes. A, a little uh, bamboo tubes about the size of a pen of yes, a burrow. Yes, And uh, there's, I've seen there's little mud closings you know, on the doors on them now. Oh. I don't know what animal or what insect has, has done that. But something has taken up residence here. You know, it's there. lovely. And when, when you see the wildlife in your garden, and we've been host to a, a blue-tongued lizard, I soon discovered why. They're very fond of strawberries. Ah. In fact, one day the cheeky devil came into the house and he was under a bookcase. And how am I going to get him out? Come on, come on, there's a strawberry. <laughs> Backing away with his strawberry. And the blue tongue followed me. We haven't had his cousins, the snakes, thank goodness. I do not want them. But it's lovely to have the blue tongue, to have the birds, as you were saying, with your white Unfortunately, seed. we have a dog who also likes blue tongue lizards, so oh. I, I, I rescue them and take them over to the paddock. Yes, well, yes, if you have a dog, that does make... Uh, life a little harder. That'll help you with your digging, though, if you have a dog. <laughs> but they're, they're wonderful animals, and, and they stick their blue tongue and they look at you with a... <laughs> oh, I, I, I like them very much. And also, it's lovely to have, you know, if you have a, a pond there, to have the particular pond plants, because they, again, attract other dragonflies. Well, you might get frogs, even. Sorry? You might get frogs. Yeah, well, frogs are lovely, and then they croak away, and they're sort of comforting. And at our last place, we had a neighbour who kept chooks. And I liked those chooks. They sort of burbled away. I liked the eggs, too, of course. But it was lovely having chooks. And again, any weeds or chickweed or anything like that I didn't want for something else, I could just chuck over the fence. And I think it's quite a good idea. We're not allowed to keep chooks where we are. But why not? We, we, we did we did keep chickens for a long time, and uh, I, I like chickens. So. Yes, and some people even have ducks, which um, is, is lovely. And, and uh, I remember getting duck eggs from somebody. And um, well, really the good. thing about a chick, uh, a chicken is they they get up in the morning and they think, "What am I going to do today? I'm going to go and scratch in the garden." <laughs> yes. And you open the door and they run out of there and they scratch, 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 and they pick at whatever stuff you chucked them, and then they go and lay an egg. And at night they go to bed, and the next day they get up and they go, "What am I going to do today?" <laughs> <laughs> but somehow they're only little things. But I think they're much more important than we are. I think the whole thing of the wildlife and the garden and our environment is great than we are. It was here before us. I hope it's here after us. It'll be here when we're gone. Well, mm. we look after nature and I like the uh, Aboriginal expression that we don't live on the land, we live in the land. We are part of the land and this separation of ourselves from what we eat and what we consume, all the physical products is extremely damaging and when, as soon as we see ourselves within nature, not masters of it, we are like fleas on the back of a dog, and we bite that flea, we bite that dog, and it'll turn around and scratch us. So we become passengers. So I think that's a good note on which to finish with the Aboriginals. Say it again, we live in the land. We live in the land, not on the land. Thank you, We are Rod. part of the land. Thank you very much indeed. In today's programme... Rod Taylor has been discussing his views on the environment with me. His book, Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet, is being recorded by Geoffrey Birchfield here on Radio 1 RPH. We will promote the book and the book reading when it's going to be broadcast to air. Thank you for joining us today with Rod Taylor.
This is Camilla. I'll be back again. Happy gardening. 